the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Before we begin, a quick warning. This episode contains some strong language and descriptions of violence. In the midst of, of all of this darkness, there were two pandemics happening. One is COVID-19, and the second was really the rise of gender-based violence. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. You just heard the voice of Kavita Mehra, the executive director of Saki for South Asian Women. Saki is one of many culturally specific organizations that have been sounding the alarm in recent months as the coronavirus pandemic has worsened an already festering crisis of domestic violence in New York City. When stay-at-home orders went into effect, we were told that home was the safest place to be. But for countless survivors of domestic violence, those orders created an impossible choice. As it has for so many issues, when it comes to domestic violence, the pandemic hasn't just caused new problems in our lives, it's also exposed systemic weaknesses, and deepened pre-existing traumas, especially in low-income and immigrant communities. Which is why I felt it was urgent to have a conversation about the intense and nuanced work that goes into fighting these twin crises and how law enforcement can play a stronger role in that fight. I was grateful to be joined for this discussion by Kavita Mehra, as well as Margarita Guzman, 
the executive director of the Violence Intervention Program, which serves New York City's Latinx community. I wanted to start by asking the two of you who are on the ground in these communities doing the work every day, if you could each start by relating a story about one of your clients from these last few months that helps us and the listener uh, really understand the urgency of your work. Paint us a picture of what the crisis looks like right now. The months of March, April, and early May were incredibly dark periods for survivors of gender-based violence living here in New York City, especially shelter-in-place orders weren't um, coming into effect. And the national conversation was really around survivors coming forward with their experiences of gender-based violence. But here in New York City, we saw the opposite. We saw a 53% decline in um, helpline calls when we compared March to February. There was an incredible amount of fear in our community of survivors not wanting to leave those who were inflicting harm, even if they had an option to do so. And I remember this one particular case um, that is incredibly haunting. That was the mother who was pregnant and she was experiencing sexual violence every night. And we were offering to pay for private transportation to take her from New York to a safe place in New Jersey. And in spite of experiencing that sexual violence, she chose to stay because she didn't want to expose herself or her children the pandemic. Thank you so much for that, Kavita, because I think you've really already laid the table uh, in in just that short sketch uh, of some of the things that I'm excited to talk to you about tonight. Um, The challenges with reporting, and you talked about the drop-off in reporting during that period, um, what I always call impossible choices that I think the victims of domestic violence often have to make um, and that really make it very difficult for them to come forward to law enforcement. So we we will come back to all of that. Uh, Margarita, can you share with us a story um, that has stayed with you from this period from one of your clients? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so the woman who comes to mind for me um, is this 37-year-old Mexican national who had come to the U.S. about 10 years ago, and she has four children. Two of her children were born in Mexico. Two of them were born in the United States subsequent to her arrival. And she lives in upper Manhattan with her father. So it's five to the household. And prior to the onset of the pandemic, she was doing odd jobs, mostly house cleaning to earn some income. There's no child support from the children's father. The father of the two youngest children was the abusive father. The other father um, still resides in Mexico and has been out of their lives since she left Mexico. And only the two youngest children are eligible for benefits here in the United States, including health insurance and supplemental nutritional assistance SNAPs, or what we often refer to as food stamps. And of course, very early in the spring, everything really shifted for this family that we had been working with to just get hit with this pandemic, which of course created a loss of income for her and her entire family came down with COVID. All of them were sick. I think about this young mother of four and her father and her sort of taking on the responsibility so close to having fled trauma and having fled violence. And so the memory that I have so clearly of this family was when she came to our office to receive um, food vouchers and some emergency cash assistance to, to help, you know, just to try to help support through this crisis. She was telling her caseworker 
about all of the homeopathic remedies that she had come up with while they were sick to try to care for her sick family when there was no safety net, no care that she could access during that time. Fortunately, all the family did overcome Mm. their COVID symptoms. Um, But, you know, it's so memorable for me to hear, so humbling and, you know, still now really illuminates the problems with so many of the anti-immigrant policies of the last four years. Mm. Hoof. So, you know, those stories are, both of them, they already immediately take us uh, into um, how, how dark the experiences of survivors in this area can be. And so I just have to ask you right here at the top, what compels the two of you to do this work? Uh, you have both uh, already spent so much of your professional lives dedicated to supporting the survivors of intimate partner violence, of domestic violence. Why is that? Survivors are the strongest people I know. And uh, it's something that I believe through and through. And so when I shared with our Saki family that my life would have fundamentally been better had Saki been in it, I think it opened up the conversation to demonstrate that those who are who have been impacted by the movement should help be leading the movement. I was a intern in 2002. And I remember uh, going to the gala in the fall and turning to my boyfriend, who's now my husband and saying to him, I want to be the next executive director at Plucky. I want to lead this organization. And I had to apply for it twice because I have to work especially hard for everything. <laughs> and um, I knew you are that. Not, I knew- you are not the first person on this show to have said that. Really? Oh, that's good to know. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's really good to know. Uh, but I, 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 I knew that I wanted to come back to it because my life, my mother's life, my sister's life would have fundamentally been better. And I think mm-hmm. what moves me today, what continues to push me in this work, as, as hard as it is, is, I wish I could say it's love, but it's really pain. Picking up from there, there, what there could have been, what there should be, what there is not, and that we want to see actualized. I am a survivor of intimate partner violence that happened within the context of a queer relationship. And I remember that even though I was doing domestic violence work prior to that relationship and had an analysis and a framework for understanding what the abuse was, I couldn't find the language for what was happening to me because I was in a queer relationship and I was just so used to thinking of this in a heteronormative context. I remember being shocked when one of my friends used the word abuse to describe what was happening to me. And I was a law student in a domestic violence legal clinic, you know, a woman's studies major at university. Like I had just, it's not like I didn't understand, (laughs) but I didn't see its application to me. Um, It was this experience that really committed me to investing all my efforts towards the eradication of violence against women, girls, transgender and gender non-binary people, um, and specifically from the lens of being a community member and a survivor. Both of you, in answering that question uh, and talking about your own experiences with violence and abuse, also talked about contextualizing that uh, in your own communities. And I would love to hear you say why you've chosen to take it on this work in culturally specific ways. I mean, of course, there are also many organizations that work to support survivors of this kind of violence. Uh, 
in a way that is not culturally specific. Why is this approach your approach? And can you maybe share any stories or experiences from how you've been able to use culturally specific strategies uh, in order to reach people better than you otherwise might have? When we think about what the winning strategies are going to be to end domestic and sexual violence, we're talking about an, a goal of culture change, right? Um, and if what we are trying to change is culture, we're never going to be able to do that from outside of the cultural communities within which we want to affect that change, nor is there a one-size-fits-all strategy that will be um, a sort of panacea for all communities. And so when we are thinking about how to really transform attitudes and transform communities, there's only one approach that is not just going to be effective, but that's going to achieve that tree transformation. And that is coming from within community. And it's that cultural leadership that is going to create the responses that will resonate most deeply within those communities and not just be a message of feminism, which can sound very external, like very US dominant, very white dominant, but what that means to us, what that looks like when we live it. And one of the ways that we distribute information is with swag, I think is the word <laughs> yeah. that you use when you're, you're handing things out so that you're sort of doing outreach. Um, and we were thinking about ways that people can have something on them that doesn't look so obvious, that is really easy to hide, um, that wouldn't be suspicious. And mail files was one of the things that we started doing. So we give away tens of thousands of nail files every year <laughs> that have the violence intervention, or, or actually, I don't even think it says our name. It has our 800 number so that if the person who gave it to you could tell you what it's about, but it's, it wouldn't be at first glance, anything that would give it away. Kavita, tell us why yeah. this is culturally specific work for you. Um, and maybe some examples of how you've done that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, within the South Asian diaspora in the United States, for the most part, the diaspora has felt comfortable living within the scope of the model minority. And it doesn't speak to the cultural baggage that we are bringing from South Asia to the United States. And that includes how um, violence shows up in our community. What it, I think continues to resonate with our community is how the evolution of our programs always recognizes the South Asian experience. And so we're really constantly doing that self-reflection. I'll give you an example. In 2019, we started a food justice program. And this is specifically to address food insecurity in the South Asian diaspora. And uh, one of the things that was really important to us is to have culturally appropriate food and spices, um, to have basmati rice and turmeric and all of the spices that we use because um, that's what we eat. I mean, there's no point in having Uncle Ben's when nobody knows how to, nobody uses that. Um, <laughs> and so, <Right. laughs> so for us, really thinking very consciously of where the community is, what the community's needs are, centering community through the course of all of our interactions. And that's a good segue for me, I think, to turn to the subject of reporting. You know, you you set you set us up, Kavita, by talking about uh, reporting being such an important signal that maybe even when there's a drop in reporting, that tells us something particularly scary. It obviously doesn't mean on its face that suddenly there's been a drop in the abuse. And uh, you know, we know that across the country, even in the best of times, 
only about half of incidents of domestic violence are even reported. Uh, so as um, overwhelming as the pandemic of domestic violence seems, and I share with you um, how that it's appropriate to use that language here, uh, we're not even seeing half of it. And I've always thought that, at least for me in law enforcement, like that's the first problem to solve, uh, is to think of strategies um, for improving reporting statistics. Um, and of course, in my mind, I mean reporting to law enforcement, but I'm sure you're thinking about reporting to service organizations as well. And I wonder if you agree. I wonder if you agree that reporting is really the beginning of progress. That's such an interesting question. And I think that you're right that we have really built responses um, that are focused on, on that reporting. Um, I think almost more impactfully, we've also built resources around the amount of reporting. And so for nonprofits and law enforcement and other government responders alike, being able to say that there's a really large amount of reports often comes with more resources to combat the violence. So they're in really intrinsically linked. And I, I don't necessarily think of police reports as a metric that the word is getting out that violence is happening at all or that people are necessarily getting assistance. I do think that the most important thing is that the person who's experiencing violence has a point of contact outside of their situation who can understand that situation, who can provide options. And I think that the most important step is getting somebody connected to a supporter who can really um, help to navigate and help them plan out and think through what what some next steps could look like. Kavita, before you answer, can I? Um, I want to I want to be a little more pr provocative with you, um, and, and as a sort of a continuation of what Margarita uh, just said, because I, I heard you say recently that you thought that the criminal justice system isn't designed to support victims, and it's designed to enforce state control and that the last thing that a victim of domestic violence might need is more control in her life. And I think that really establishes the stakes of this conversation. Do you think that um, sometimes coming to law enforcement is actually the worst thing for a survivor and that shouldn't be what we're looking for? Um, or is it about sort of changing law enforcement, making it more available, uh, making it more sensitive uh, and for the ultimate goal for it to look different and more attractive and more productive and more protective for victims. The fact of law enforcement coming to uh, one's house is already a traumatic experience because you've got sirens and lights and you've got foreign people in your home, which is supposed to be a very private, intimate space. And that's a really difficult space to come from to create immediate safety and comfort when someone's just experienced a form of trauma. And if we're thinking about how we can create safer spaces for survivors to come forward with their experiences, it requires an entire ecosystem change. It requires an immediate option for a survivor to know that she doesn't have to, or they don't have to necessarily go to a shelter because that's their only option. Um, it requires that there's immediate mental health support for themselves and their children if they have it. And it also requires that, you know, it's the only other option can't just be law enforcement um, because having law enforcement come in as an immediate step and then having the binary decision of having to choose between someone being arrested or not being arrested. 
isn't always the best option, especially if one is having to carry and weigh the decision, what's the impact on my kids? So we have to create ecosystems that are putting survivors, particularly immigrant survivors, and those who are undocumented at the center of their experiences. So in this mix, uh, what is the role for law enforcement? Is it danger assessment? Is it to protect against further harm? Is it for accountability? I mean, it sounds to me like maybe you think not so much the third part, you know, just in terms of balancing um, various needs and considerations. It's important, I feel like, to center the conversation on the fact that domestic and sexual violence cannot be ended by arrest and imprisonment. Um, And that what will end violence is cultural and attitudinal change. And to that end, law enforcement is not a social change entity, right? That's not law enforcement's job. It's not its role. It is there to intervene in a moment. It is there to respond to an incident. And in that context can absolutely have a life-saving impact. Um, But I do think that outside of um, the assessment around potential lethality and risk of severe injury, that the cops can also play a really critical role in in that moment, being able to bridge the family members to support services because they're not going to be with the family after that. Those are two really critical roles that can be played by law enforcement. Um, that sounds um, right right to me. And uh, go ahead, Kavita. We have cases that just stay with us. And in, in the early aughts, I had one of those cases. I was working at a sister organization and I used to work from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m in the shelter facility. And this survivor came in with her four children and her two arms were in cast and held up. So what had happened a few weeks earlier was that the survivor was, um, it was her son's 13th birthday. She was taking his cake from the kitchen into the living room and the family is singing happy birthday. And as they're singing happy birthday, her estranged husband walks in with a machete in his hand and starts to Um, mutilate the survivor in front of her children and um, immediately then fled. He was, he ended up fleeing to his home country. The police tried looking for him um, and had, she had pressed charges and all of that. But at that moment as well, what that family needed was support services. You know, I, I think when we think about these, especially these really horrific cases, it's incumbent upon us to also remember that it's the ecosystem and all of the touch points that survivors need, because it's having just the police show up isn't going to be the only answer. It cannot be the only answer. I appreciate, you know, both of you just using these examples to show that it's not one or the other. Uh, You know, there are roles for law enforcement. There are roles for different kinds of services and support if we're actually going to heal people and heal communities. And yet, so I still want to ask you, If you could get in front of the police academy, like what are the five things you would want police officers to know about domestic abuse uh, before they went out to respond to a call? One of the things most important for law enforcement responders to have at the forefront of their thoughts going into what they refer to as domestics is to know that the story is so much bigger than anything that they're going to be seeing in that moment. I remember having a client who was arrested because though she was the ongoing survivor in an abusive relationship, when the cop showed up, he was bleeding on his face and she had no visible injuries. And what had happened is that he was strangling her and she scratched his face to try to save herself. And when the cops walked in, he was bleeding and she was fine by all appearances. So she was arrested 
the lack of respect, the lack of seriousness with which they often engage the survivor who may be showing up in very emotional, in very erratic behavior patterns um, because they are fearful for their life and possibly also fearful that the cops are there now because once the cops leave, their things are going to get worse. Just understanding that their impact, the impact that they have, every word they say is going to have an impact in that relationship to dignify the entire situation with the gravity of what could happen when they walk out that door. I, I mean, I fundamentally believe as, as we work through these big questions at Saki as well, you know, what is our relationship with the police? What is our relationship with the carceral system? We are constantly saying there has to be another option. I don't think we know what the answers are yet. If I knew all the answers, I would not need to have this podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I hear you. That That's that's what we're doing, um, listening. Yeah. Uh, and as I'm listening to you, my question was, what do you want police officers to know? And of course, I think you've also answered in part the question of what you want prosecutors to know. I'm going to zoom out a little bit. So I am, as you know, running to lead uh, a government institution that has never been led by a woman, uh, has never been led by a non-white person, has never been led by an immigrant do you think it matters? Do you think it would matter uh, for survivors of this kind of violence if the DA had a different identity? I think real lived experiences are necessary in informing the type of work we do. I think it produces a level of empathy and understanding and prioritizes the experiences of, of what really people need. Um, and so to be removed from, from those identities really creates a barrier. It is not just that representation matters, though. It also, I think, really matters that that representation is constantly informed by coalitions that are representative of and raise the voices of communities. For the first time, we have a woman of color who will be the vice president of the United States. And what does that mean for us? You know, I'm, I'm thrilled to see what it means. I also feel like so much gets put on women of color to... So like now that you're there, you've got to make everything completely different, right? Like now, now it's up to you to change all of the problems that it took us centuries to build. <laughs> so, so I also want to offer some compassion and kindness for electeds to know that, um, you know, it takes, it takes the community and, and there's an unfair pressure on those electeds, I feel, when they step into office sometimes um, and a very real responsibility. So it's hard work. Kavita told us to work twice as hard and, and then everything will be fine. <laughs> Just you and like every other brown girl and every other immigrant. Exactly. <laughs> One small action can have these profound consequences, um, either positive or ne negative. But I think as leaders, we also need to understand that fully. Like our actions, the small policies, the tweaks that we make, the decisions that we make, how that has system change impacting the communities that we serve. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers Fratali and Kavita Mehra and Margarita Guzman's appearances on the show do not constitute political endorsements. 
Please check the show notes for this episode for links to their organizations, where you can learn more about the important work they do. I am running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tallyfordier.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tally Farhadian Weinstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Hearing. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.